Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Last week, we saw a leper with whom Jesus had this unthinkable interaction with. And we saw in this story with this leper, a story of redemption. A story that goes beyond, that went beyond the healing of the flesh. We talked about the cleansing of Adam's race by the one person who alone in all of history could have done so. For all else, everybody else in all of history who was, is, and is to come is unclean. And when we touch the another, the others who are unclean, nothing happens. We are all unclean. <laughs> but Jesus comes, the clean one, the white one. He comes and he touches us and he does not become unclean, but we become clean. We saw a picture of that in this story of the leper last week from this Jesus, this rabbi, who doesn't really care about the social structures of his day. He didn't care what the rules and regulations were for the rabbi. He came with purpose, with mission. And today we're going to see him going above and beyond what any other rabbi was willing to do in his day. Yesterday, or last week, it was a leper. Today we're going to see somebody of a different sort. And we're going to see something a little bit deeper again than just a simple healing. Let's start reading Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Lord, give us an understanding of your word. Show us, reveal to us the mysteries of your gospel. These parables, these, these, are, not, these are true stories, but they are parabolic of spiritual truths. They reveal to us Christ's person, and his mission. And Lord, I pray that we would take the responsibility for the 
for the need to believe, for the need to follow. Give us understanding, Lord. Send your spirit to us that we might see what is beyond the physical appearance of a story and see the deeper truths of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now here we see at the beginning of this story that Jesus enters into the town Capernaum. Capernaum wasn't an important place. It was a humble fishing village. Likely that's where some of his disciples were from. They had family there or whatnot. But it wasn't really that significant of a town until after the apostles died and it became a, uh, a memorial for Peter's house. They, there was a big church built on the site where the, um, early Christians believed Peter's house sat. So Capernaum kind of became famous at that point. But at this point in history... It's just a humble fishing village where you lived in Capernaum if you were in the fishing industry, because uh, that's what you were. That's what your job was. It was. It sat on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a perfect place for the trade of fishing. And here we see Jesus being approached by somebody of significance, a centurion. What do you know about centurions? I mean, the word itself suggests something about a hundred, <laughs> right? A centurion was a Roman official, a guard who was over a hundred other guards. He was somebody that the Jews were really best friends with, right? No, no, no. <laughs> they weren't best friends with these people. These people did not get along with the Jews. He's a Roman soldier who managed a hundred other soldiers, and they were likely stationed nearby to keep law and order in the surrounding villages. This man, this centurion, would have been despised by the Jews. Not only as an outsider and a Gentile, which was bad enough, but also as an abusive and a corrupt pawn in the hand of the Roman emperor, whose job was to suppress and to take command of the Israelites in their own land. An abomination. The Gentiles coming in to the promised land that was rightfully the Jews. And now these people are taking command of them in their own land that God gave them. This was not the Romans' land. This was the Jews' land. And they're coming in and taking over the people. The Romans were not people of significance to the Jews. The Jews did not like the Romans. For many reasons, as we have briefly gone over. And if you remember, if you want to, if you look back and remember Matthew 5:43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The enemy on everybody's mind was this kind of a person when Jesus said that. And they were being taught, it's okay to hate these people because these people are anti against God against God's ways, against the chosen people. So it's okay to hate them. That's what the people of Israel were being taught. Because they were Gentiles, because they were oppressive, because they had no right to be there. But then Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. He's talking about the stereotypical Roman soldier 
Gentile sinner. And this is the person coming up to Jesus. And and we have to see here how the centurion came to him. When Jesus entered Capernaum, the centurion came to him pleading with him. Pleading. When was the last time you pled with someone? When was the last time you begged someone for something? Most of us probably, perhaps we've never done something like that. Or if we have, it's probably been some time. I mean, what's it like to beg? To plead? It's humiliating. It's because you only plead and beg when you're at your wit's end, when there's nothing else that you can do. When you don't have the strength or the ability to do anything. Otherwise, we don't beg because begging is humiliating. But this centurion, this Roman leader, this soldier, this strong, powerful person whose presence demanded respect and authority, he comes to Jesus pleading with him. You can just picture this. This centurion arrives probably on the scene in Capernaum, likely accompanied by several other soldiers, as was the tradition. They were all wearing their Roman armor. And typically if a Roman guard, especially a centurion, approached a Jew, nothing good was about to happen. They were probably there to to enact some sort of justice or force them into some task for them. And perhaps this is what the disciples thought was happening. Jesus had his disciples with him, and they're being approached by these Roman guards. And the disciples are just like, oh no, what's going to happen now? I mean, after all, Jesus had just preached this sermon. Crowds were gathering. And Romans, one thing that the Romans did not like were crowds of Jews. (laughs) Because that just spelled out trouble. So perhaps it was on everybody's mind, these Roman soldiers are coming to Jesus to put him in prison, to try to dismantle this gathering that has come together. Fear rises up in the disciples' hearts. But then the unthinkable happens. The Roman soldier, he approaches Jesus and he drops to his knees. He drops to his knees, his knees, and he starts begging He starts begging Jesus. He is abandoning his authority over Jesus, given to him by the Roman government. And he is treating Jesus like his authority. This is unthinkable. And he addresses him in verse 6, saying, Lord, I mean, who else just said Lord to Jesus? It was the leper. Remember, the leper said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He approached him as Lord, Master, the one who has authority over me. And the centurion is doing the same thing, saying, Lord, Master, the one who has authority over me in my situation. Lord, not just teacher, not just rabbi, the leper, the Gentile. They recognize Jesus as Lord. These outcast people recognize Jesus as Lord. 
It's the Jews who called Jesus rabbi. It's the Jews who called Jesus teacher. But it's the leper and the Gentile who recognize Jesus as Lord. Have you ever seen that in Scripture? And he offers his request. Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Now this is also very significant to understand about the centurion because what does a centurion care about his servants? They're a dime a dozen. Servant passes away, get another one. But this centurion, for some reason, cares a great deal about his servant. It's very interesting to think about. And I don't want to dwell on the character of the centurion right now. Obviously, he's a bit different than some of his day. Some of the more abusive centurions and Romans, otherwise Roman soldiers of his day. Because of his great care for his servant. But Jesus replies to him. Jesus says in verse 7, I will come and heal him. I mean, the, the centurion hasn't even really asked yet. He just says, Lord, my servant is lying home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus just says, okay, I will come and heal him. Which is unthinkable. Jesus is a Jew. He doesn't, need, he doesn't help Roman Gentiles. Not, especially not this Roman guard who everybody hates and everybody's taught that they're supposed to hate. Jesus isn't supposed to help him willingly. Remember when Jesus taught, go the extra mile? <laughs> if one says to you, come with me a mile, go with him another mile. Jesus is living that out. You know what? I will come and heal him. Before you even ask, before you even make the request, I will come and heal your servant. Nobody else would have done that. You ask a Jewish doctor, they're only going to help you if you, force, if you force them to, they don't want to help the Romans. They hate the Romans. Jesus willingly, even though he's supposed to hate and teach against loving the Gentiles, especially the Romans, he is offering his help. And the centurion answered him, and this is where it gets really deep, <laughs> perhaps for some of us. In verse 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. He's showing more humility. He's showing how much he thinks about Jesus. He knows something about Jesus that other people do not know. He sees something different in Jesus that not everybody else sees. Because he, he knows his authority. This Roman knows his own authority. But he is so keenly aware of Christ's authority, even though he hasn't even really interacted with him. Perhaps he was one of the soldiers kind of moderating the crowd during the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps he was there listening to his teaching. Otherwise, there hasn't really been much opportunity for this man to really get to know Jesus and interact with Jesus. But somehow, some way, this centurion knows there's something different about Jesus. Enough for him to humble himself, to call him Lord, to drop to his knees, to beg of Jesus like a peasant. 
And he tells Jesus, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. I am not worthy. Have you ever, thought, have you ever prayed that in your prayers to God? When you're just thinking about your salvation, when you're just thinking about his goodness to you, have you ever prayed that to God? God, I'm not worthy of this. I am not worthy that you have come and cleaned out my house. Why me? Why not so-and-so? They're so much better of a person than me. Why did you come to me and give me salvation? I'm not worthy of this. That's something we should consider because it's true. I'm not worthy of this. The centurion Gentile understood it, and he should have been the last person to understand that. Again, going back to the very beginning of Jesus' sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this centurion is blessed, for he understands his poor spirit. He goes on and says, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For, and here's, here's the foundation for why this man is say, stated that last statement. Only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Here's why he can say that with confidence. For, I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come. And he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. I remember when I was a teenager, this passage confused me. Why is he saying all of this? But I came to realize he's saying this because he is showing the depth of faith. He is showing a foundational understanding of what it is to believe in Jesus. Remember Abraham? He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It's not because he offered Isaac. It's not because he followed and did the actions. It's because he did all of those things because he believed God. Because he believed that even though what God said was impossible, we talked about this a few weeks ago, even though God's, what God promised Abraham was impossible, Abraham believed him. And this man is showing a similar faith that says, I understand your authority, Jesus. I understand your lordship. I understand your power. Even though you haven't been ministering long, I already see it. Because I, I'm under authority. When my manager tells me go, I go. When my manager tells me do this, I do that. Because he's my authority. What he says goes. And I have people under me, the, the, the centurion says. I have people under me. I'm a manager of my servants and my soldiers. If I tell this troop, go over to that city, they're going to go over to that city. If I tell this troop, stay here and come with me, they will come with me. If I tell my servant, I need you to bring me my food, they will bring him his food. Why? Because that's how authority works. It's supposed to. And he's comparing this to his faith in Jesus. Why he, why he knows that Jesus can do this. Why? Because he knows that Jesus has authority over all creation. He knows that Jesus has authority over everybody, everywhere, everything, in every corner of the world. And this centurion sees it. 
And he knows that if Jesus just commands that sickness to depart, that sickness will depart because Jesus has authority over it. Do you understand that about God? Do you understand that about Jesus? That Jesus has full authority over everything, everywhere, everybody, in every nation, in every community, in every household. And if only Jesus snapped his finger and said, do this, they would do that. Do you believe that about Jesus? Or are you distracted by all the evil that's going on in the world? And that raises up the questions. If evil, then why? why does, if God is love, then why evil? That's a distracting thought from the authority of Jesus. It's not a bad question to consider. And we're not going to consider that right now. But there we have all these questions in our head. If God really has control over everything and he's full of love and compassion then why are things the way they are? And we'll address it a little bit from a different point of view during this message, Lord willing. But first, we, we need to be, see the significance of what this, this centurion is saying, what he is recognizing, what he is seeing. He is seeing Christ's authority over everything. I mean, the centurion's servant is not Jesus' servant, sort of speak, humanly speaking. But the centurion knows that Jesus has authority over his sickness. Jesus has authority over his servant. Jesus has authority over him. Jesus has authority over everything. And if only he speaks the word, it will be done. doesn't matter what it is, because he's the authority. He is the Lord, not just of the centurion, but of the world. And the centurion sees it. And that's why he can make this request. That's why he knows that Jesus can heal his servant if, if only he speaks the word. He doesn't even have to, his authority is so great that he doesn't even have to come to the centurion's house and touch him or apply some balm to him or perform some medical operation to him. He doesn't need to do that because he knows Jesus' authority is far deeper and more significant than that. Jesus is not a doctor who applies special remedies for the healing of paralyzed servants. No, he is the Lord of the universe, which his request suggests he also understands he's the creator of the universe. He knit together the fabric of all creation. And therefore, what he says about how that fabric weaves together or doesn't weave together goes. If part of that fabric of creation gets sick or ripped, he can fix it because he's the one who put it all together. So this centurion's understanding of Christ's authority is foundational to faith. And see how Jesus responds to him. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. Jesus doesn't marvel at people very often. Just a couple times in all of scripture. And here he's marveling at this Gentile centurion. And he said to those who followed. So it's, here's the centurion. The centurion is making his request. He is giving the foundational faith behind that request. And Jesus just starts marveling. He turns to the side where his disciples are. And they're observing this interaction between he and the Roman centurion. And now he proclaims to them something that's going to rock their world. And something that we're going to look at that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 9. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Ouch! 
Just that statement alone. I have not found faith like this. This Gentile, who is supposed to be an outsider, he is, he is not the recipient of the law. He did not come from Abraham. He, did not come, he does not have a lineage that dates all the way back throughout Jewish history. He's an outsider, cut off from God's people. And yet, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found this kind of faith, not even here in Israel, amongst God's chosen people. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, talking about Gentiles, non-Jews, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Look at that. The Gentiles are going to become part of the lineage of the promised people. These people who are not a people shall be called my people. They will come and sit down in the kingdom of heaven with the patriarchs. But, in verse 12, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Ouch. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At one point, just days ago, before Jesus started speaking... All was well in Jerusalem. They had their law. They had their traditions. They had their temple. They were the people of God, the the lineage of Abraham, the promised people in the promised land. Everything was neat and tidy. The Jews had the inheritance of God. The Gentiles were cut off from all of it. They didn't have a portion in God's bounty. Everything was neat and clean until Jesus opened his mouth. (laughs) The Jews' life, okay, so maybe the Romans were there. That was detestable, but at least they were still the people of God. And they could hate the Romans. They could hate the Gentiles. They could still think about the Gentiles and think, those are outsiders. Those are not the people of God. God still has blessings in store for us he's going to send the messiah the messiah is going to kick these gentiles out and we're going to be well again and everything's going to be neat and tidy again don't we like we like neat and tidy we like organized we like things in their proper boxes and that's why the jews were going to be rejected because they wanted everything to be nice boxed up organized neat and tidy who's who's good who's bad Let me just write it down. The Jews are good. The Gentiles are bad. God's with the Jews. He's not with the Gentiles. And now Jesus is turning the world upside down. Many will come from the east and west and sit with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That rocked their world. That was as close to blasphemy as you could get without speaking against God himself for the Jew. To say that the Jews were going to experience the rejection of God and the Gentiles were going to get his blessing, that they were going to be invited in to the banquet to be the lineage of Abraham, that's blasphemous in the Jews' eyes. I'm sure it doesn't say, and many were angry, it doesn't say that here, But I'm sure that there were some people who were offended at that. 
And I want you to see, this is, with these things in mind, turn over to Romans chapter 9. Now Romans chapter 9 is probably one of the most controversial chapters in the entire scriptures. Amongst churches, that is. I don't think that the unsaved world really gives a hoot. But Romans chapter 9. Romans is such a hard, hard book to, to preach through. Because really when you read the book of Romans, it's just one train of thought that just keeps moving at the speed of light. <laughs> so I'm going to do my best to try to give you a brief overview, if that's even possible, of Romans chapter 9 here. Keeping in mind what we've just read in Matthew chapter 8. He's, Paul starts by talking about how much he loves the Jews. He says in verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promise, of whom are the fathers, talking about the patriarchs, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And on, those, on that foundation that Paul is talking about, I mean, this is foundational to why Jews were okay to reject the Gentiles in their own eyes. Because the, the Jews had all of those things. The Gentiles had no portion in any of the things that Paul just talked about. And in fact, Paul himself brings up these things as a reason for why he grieves over them. They were given all of this by God. They were the chosen people. They were sanctified in God's eyes. God chose to do all of his work for the last 2,000 years through the people that came from Abraham and the patriarchs. And he wishes, Paul wishes, that he could trade his own eternal life for theirs so that they could have their portion back. Because they've rejected the Messiah, by and large. In verse 6, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. See, now he's, all, he's getting into this understanding that, okay, I understand now. You know, perhaps when he was a Pharisee, he couldn't understand this. But he understands it now. That just because I'm an Israelite, doesn't mean that I have unrestricted access to the kingdom of God. Because it doesn't matter who you are, you must enter by faith. Just like that Gentile had, just like that centurion had, that faith that believed in God and the Christ whom he sent. <clears throat> Verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now, this is a mystery. Paul refers to himself as the revealer of mysteries. This is a mystery kept secure in the Old Testament in the form of type of prophetic parable that he is now unlocking for us. So what about Isaac? Okay, doesn't it sound the same thing? It's not just because you're the, the seed or the lineage of Abraham, but then he just says, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Well, isn't that the same? Isaac, Isaac was Abraham's son. 
through whom the rest of us were born. How is, he, how is this proof that it's by faith? Well, he's going to tell us. Verse 8, that is, those who, are, who, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. See that? Isaac was Abraham's promised son. Now this is prophetic parable, this story. Often a parable is, a, is, a, is a, an elaboration, some tale told that proves an example. But this is a real story. That's why I call it a prophetic parable. I don't know if that's a real term, but I like it. This real story that occurred way back in Israel's early years where Abraham was promised that Sarah, in her old age, your barren wife will have a son. I promise this to you. And because Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. Isaac was born a child of promise. The child that Abraham had faith that God would deliver. And by that faith, he received his righteousness. And this Isaac, he says, not those that are of the flesh, not, not talking about people who come from the blood of Isaac. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, hey, going down another generation, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Okay, so... Isaac was the son of promise. Now Isaac and Mary's Rebecca. Rebecca can't have children. But God promises Isaac she'll have a son. Or she'll have two, she'll have children actually. That will be at enmity with each other. And Rebecca even has a hard labor, the Bible says. They were at the verge of losing the children. And then they and then Rebecca prays. For the situation, and God promises to Rebecca, no, you'll give birth. And she gives birth to Jacob and Esau. And then he says in he says in verse eleven, for the children not yet being born, because he's he's kind of moving the train again, the train of thought. Nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. God is choosing before they were even born that the older, which is Esau, will serve Jacob the younger, which was culturally unacceptable. As it is written in verse 13, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated before they were even born. God partitioned this out for history to move the way it did, for his own eternal purposes. God doesn't just randomly pick stuff for no reason. For his own eternal purposes, he decided, Jacob I will love, Esau I will hate. And then raises the question, well, if God can just do that without people having a chance to prove themselves, how is that fair? And that's why people don't like this idea of election. Because it's not fair. Can't we have a chance to earn it? Can't we have a chance to prove ourselves? 
Can't we all just have a chance? Why do you have to be so unfair, God? Which, if God were fair according to our measure of fairness, there would be nobody in heaven because then it would be by works and not by faith, which means all salvation would be obliterated. He says in verse 14, But what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Look at Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. Likely, It's likely that you've read this. Some of you have probably read this a million times. Exodus 33, 19. And bear with me, because we're building a scene here. This is all for a purpose. Exodus 33, 19. Moses is on the mountain with God, and God is about to show Moses his glory. He's going to pass by him and let Moses get a glimpse of his glory. And he says in Exodus 33, 19, Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. I want to stop there, because the purpose is not to tell this whole story. But have you ever read this story and thought, why in the world did he say that in this situation? He's just telling Moses, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And then it just seems random that he throws in there, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's not even talking about that. He's not even talking about his compassion or his mercy. They're not negotiating on behalf of the people. He just says it out of the blue. Just this random statement. Have you ever thought and wondered, why in the world is that there? Well, it's not random. I don't know what your version looks like, but I've wondered in studying this passage if... When it says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I wonder if there should be a colon there. Because he's about to reveal what the name of the Lord is. He has many things that he goes by. I am that I am. He told Moses that in the burning bush. That was his name that he was to declare to the people. But now he's saying, I'm going to have my goodness pass before you. How do you see goodness? I mean, when you, when you think about when God passed before Moses, Moses' face started to shine because of the brightness. But we don't really think, man, that's really bright. That was the goodness of that, the sun. The sun is really bright. I see its goodness. God says, I'm going to have my goodness pass before you, and I will declare my name before you. Now, to me, it looks here that he is giving him an understanding. A little bit, he's clarifying a little bit. My goodness looks like this. My name sounds like this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So this idea of election is foundational to the very person that God is. Because it's foundational to the mercy and the compassion of God being expressed to you and to me. When God reveals his glory, he's not a narcissist that just kind of want to look, wants to look at it. No, he's self-sufficient. He doesn't need to continually remind himself about how good he is. You and I need to see his glory. 
you and I need to be continually reminded of his goodness and his mercy. That is his glory being revealed to us. And that's exactly what Paul, back in Romans chapter 9, is trying to build for us. He's trying to put the mercy and the goodness and the compassion of God on display. And he's doing so by describing to us the election of God. And how mercy and goodness are amplified by election, not suppressed by election. Continuing on here with that in mind. So in in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who is unfair to all humankind. No, but God who shows mercy. That statement alone shows us that there there is a tether tying mercy and election together. You can't have one without the other. They are mutually inclusive. Verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and he heart on whom he wills he hardens. Now, dwell on that for a second with me. What's he talking about? He's talking about the slavery of God's people in bondage of the Egyptians. For 500 years, Israel was bound under hard labor to Egypt as slaves. Was that unfair? These are God's people. How could God let that happen? For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you. How was God's power displayed in the situation with Pharaoh and the Hebrew people in their being chosen, drawn out, and redeemed from oppression. You see that. that this is a picture of election. Redemption is a picture of election because redemption assumes that there's somebody being drawn out and somebody being left behind. There's an oppressor. There's something that's evil, something that's wicked, that's being rejected, something that God is choosing to make righteous that's being drawn out and sanctified. That is foundational to an understanding of what redemption really is. Without election, there is no redemption. Therefore, there is no mercy, because only in the sanctifying redemption of God do we see mercy and this glory being being just scattered this is something that we could talk about for hours, but we have our things, right? We have the Super Bowl to go see, right? (laughs) I'm just kidding. So, was God unjust in purposefully placing his people in bondage to the Egyptians? Ouch. I thought these were your chosen people. You're putting them in bondage? You're deliberately raising up Pharaoh to rule over them? That sounds mean. It's not just mean for Pharaoh. It's mean for, the, for your own people. A lot of pain's involved in that. But what does it say? For this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. 
and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he, who has, he, has mercy, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens, because that's part of the process of redemption. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? This is the perfect time for Paul to reveal to us all the mysteries of election and answer all of our questions about if God is so good, then why does he allow evil? But I'm a little disappointed with Paul because he doesn't answer all those questions. (laughs) I say that, humanly speaking, because there's always a reason why. But he says, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will, you, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel of honor and another for dishonor? It's more important. It's not, it's not so important for us to have all the answers. If we had all the answers, why do we need faith? Paul is teaching us it's more important for us to have faith, to believe God. In this ridiculous situation, ridiculous, take loosely, it's more important for you to believe God. Because if you can't believe God when you don't understand it, then you don't have faith. Verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory? He says, what if? Perhaps, dwell on this. This can help clarify some things. What if it's not about you and your the lifestyle that you want to live? The world that you envision. What if it's not about that? What if it's about God wanting to juxtapose his wrath and his mercy and his glory? What if he set up all of this so that we could actually see a powerful display of God's compassion and mercy, and therefore see his glory. What if all of this was set up because this is what God's glory demanded? The world does not demand your comfort. The world demands his glory. And his glory, by nature, according to what we're seeing here, includes him showing mercy on us. Everlasting mercy. So by election alone, we get to see mercy. That's how we have it. That's how we get to be partakers in the inheritance of God. That's how it's there. That's how we know God to be compassionate. Because of his sanctifying redemption. In the midst of all of his his will being done in man. We have to keep moving. That he prepared beforehand for glory. That's the end of verse 23. That he prepared beforehand for glory. A glory that produces mercy and compassion. That's defined in Exodus 33:19 as being the goodness of God that passes before us. The eyes of the flesh see election as evil, wickedness. Not fair. But the eyes that can see perceive the goodness of God passing before us in all of this. Even, verse 24, us whom he called, not the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. See, now we're bringing back the Gentiles into this equation. He said also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. 
and her beloved who was not beloved. Are we starting to make some connections here? If not, we'll keep talking about it. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Now we're seeing another mystery that was wrapped up in the Old Testament. Why did God have, create such a contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles? Why did God want there to be such a contrast? Why did he set up racism in the past? <laughs> I'm speaking loosely. Why did he set them at odds? Why did he give the law to the Jews and keep the Gentiles away from it? Why did he not call the Gentiles into the Jew, into the? Why did it have to be separated by nations? Why couldn't it hit his law and his promises just have been given to everybody everywhere all from the beginning? Otherwise, we would not see such powerful display of mercy on the Gentiles. I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. The Jews were set at odds to the Gentiles so that just like Pharaoh was raised up to abuse and use the Hebrews so that redemption might be put on display in a powerful way, so the Israelites and the Gentiles were set against each other so that one day the Gentiles might have the same testimony of redemption from the heart of mercy from a compassionate God who calls as he will. We don't forget, everybody sitting here is a Gentile. This is what we're partaking in. Unless you're, I don't know, somebody might have a Jewish lineage somewhere. I don't know. But this is what we get to partake in. All of this selection from the prepared beforehand and wrapped up in mystery, revealed to us here in the New Testament by Paul, which was really foretold by Jesus in this illustration with the Gentile, talking about faith, <laughs> that Paul is now kind of digging into and broadening our understanding of. We Gentiles, because of election, just like Israel had an exodus and a journey into the promised land because of God sanctifying them and making them his chosen, beloved people. Now, in the same way, because Jesus, God set up this juxtaposition between Israelites and the Jews, now we get to see this powerful display of his mercy for us, the Gentiles. It was all part of the plan to one day bring in the Gentiles, but the scene needed to be set. And he's going to say that in, just in verse 27 and 28. Is, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Okay, so they're, they're a great nation, but they're going to be brought to, to little. Look in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22 and 23. While I finish verse 28. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Now look at Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. Isaiah chapter 10. This is where this is quoted from. This passage can be a little cryptic, but that's why I want to look back here in Isaiah 10, verses 22 and 23. For he says, For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will, be, will return, the destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. 
For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. This is exactly what we're talking about. And let me unfold this for you for a second here. Israel was God's chosen people, but there was going to, something was going to happen to them for the, for the nationalistic pride to decrease. And then he says, the remnant will return, a remnant being a small portion. In, verse, in, chapter, in Isaiah chapter 1, he talks about how it'll just be like a booth of cucumbers amidst an entire field that once was. Verse, in the end of verse 22, the destruction decreed, okay, so what's going to happen to Israel is going to result in the overflowing of righteousness. So this evil that's happening to Israel, this dwindling down of them, is going to somehow overflow in righteousness. Verse 23, for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. He's making an end to what? You would naturally think he's talking about an end to Israel, but no, that's not what he's talking about. He's making an end to something that he is setting up, something that he is building. He's going to finish a work that he is doing in Israel's history. At one point, when this overflow of righteousness comes, it's going to bring in all the Gentiles into the faith of Abraham. He's going to make an end to the work, the building up of the scene in Israel, so that there will be a determined end, a spot where God says, enough, now it's time to move on. Enough of everything just being in Israel, now I'm expanding it to the whole world, bringing in all the Gentiles. He set the scene up for 2,000 years since Abraham. Now he's done setting the scene. He's making a determined end to him building the picture. Now he's going to actually perform his will that he had preparing all along. And this powerful display of his glory being revealed in the name of his goodness, his mercy, and his compassion in calling, bringing in the Gentiles in a beautiful, wonderful display. That's what this means. And that's why Paul is quoting it in Romans chapter 9. If it was just talking about Israel being cut off, it wouldn't fit in this conversation about Israel and Gentiles. But it fits. Because all along, prepared beforehand, God was preparing the world for the exodus of the Gentiles. Israel had their exodus now the Gentiles have their exodus from the sinfulness of the world. And now they have their own journey into the promised land. Called by God, chosen by God, being prepared for thousands of years before Jesus. Now Jesus comes. Jews thought they were his Messiah. They didn't think that he was going to be the Messiah for the whole world. He came as the Messiah to the Jew and the Gentile, bringing all nations in one name in Abraham's faith. Not Abraham's lineage, Abraham's faith. We could keep going through this chapter, but our time doesn't allow it. And I think we've pushed forth the main theme of Romans chapter 9 here that's been running through the chapter. Is that this election builds God's glory so that his goodness and mercy can really be seen in a powerful way rather than this casual, intellectual understanding of things that happen. 
No, they, the Israelites, they were kind of wandering in Egypt, and then one day they decided to get out and go fulfill the will of the Lord. That's not powerful. God is glorious, powerful, and he reveals it in powerful situations that he prepares and builds for time. So Matthew chapter 8, we see the significance of this and how this is kind of unfolded from what Jesus said about this Gentile centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. And we'll end by, by rejuvenating our, our, our memory here. And when Jesus heard it, it being the faith of the Gentile centurion, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. See, Israel had been depreciated. They are passing down. They are minimizing for the sake of God's future for the whole world. And now I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. And they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Here the Gentiles are being brought in to the covenant of God. A covenant that was one reserved for a nation called Israel. But now the Gentiles are entering into this in a powerful display of redemption in Christ Jesus. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who try to put the new wine in the old skins, they will not be amongst the chosen. People who try to still act like it's the law. No, the law. The Messiah, they were given to the Jews. It's ours, mine. Nationalistic pride. People who still try to live like that. Like I have earned it because of where I come from. Those people have no part in the inheritance. But the Gentiles who recognized that they have no part in the inheritance. But put their faith in Jesus. They are brought in. And we, take, we need to take this. We need to dwell on this. There is a lot here to dwell on. You can't do Romans 9 justice in a half an hour. <laughs> there is much more to dwell on. But I hope that we've been able to see a display of God's glory here today. And how the election, the election of God has brought a powerful display, not of God's redemption, not just for Israel, but for us, the Gentiles. And that we can just be overwhelmed with the mercy and the compassion of God and just see the depth of his wisdom and everything that he's been preparing all through scripture so that the Gentiles could then be brought in and the whole world, then Jesus could be the savior of the whole world for he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And that you and I would battle within us some sort of similar nationalistic pride I come from a Christian family. I come from, you know, Republican states. I, this, I, this, this is my background. This is, my, these are my achievements. This is my understanding. I go to a reformed church. <laughs> All of that will send us to hell. All of that is putting new wine into old skins. It'll be gushed out on the ground and worth, <clears throat> defined in worthlessness. We must battle this. And we must recognize with the centurion, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. 
But then, remember, kind of like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming. And when, in Revelation, when Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He said that to a church. Not the unbelievers. He said that to a church. I stand at the door and knock. He's come to us. But we need to open the door with an understanding that we don't deserve for him to come into our house. We don't deserve it. We have no rights to his inheritance. But I believe in his love. I believe in his goodness that is passing before us. And we can have hope that one day we will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven rather than being cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth because we believed God about something that's hard to believe. That he would come to us with mercy in his hands, with the gift of grace, not because I earned it, but then we wouldn't be able to be poor in spirit like this centurion. If we tried to earn it, we would say, come on in, come on in, I prepared it all for you, I made it all nice and pretty, I cleaned the house. So now it makes sense that you would want to come over. That's not faith. Faith says, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. But by God's mercy and compassion, we can enter into this grand display of glory that God has been preparing for ages. God, I thank you for your great grace and your great glory that you have revealed to us in Scripture. We can only see this, Lord, if you show it to us with the eyes of faith. Father, I pray that we would not miss the significance of what's going on here. There is so much depth and width and breadth and length to your word. But if there's anything we get from this, Lord, I pray that you would grant us the gift of humility that we might posture ourselves before you, not as one who has earned, but as one who is about to receive mercy as a beggarly person who has nothing to offer and therefore must resort to begging. Thank you for your love and your generosity to us. In Jesus' name, amen.